Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. This is a text that is deeply, deeply personal. Conversation that takes place between Jesus and Peter in the weeks after the resurrection. Now, throughout the past few months, all the way back to the start of February, we've been studying the connection between the presence of the Lord and the power that we experience and the power that we gain from being in his presence. And we've seen everything. It was appropriate that we just sang holy, 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 because that's where we started back in February with Isaiah seeing the vision of the Lord and, and the angels round about him singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So we started there with the awesomeness of God and we talked about his presence in the tabernacle and at Sinai. And then we moved into the fact of his discipline and his judgment. And the fact that there is a price for sin. And then we moved into how he works in our lives from blessing us and giving us confidence to last week, sometimes even hiding his face from us and, and kind of guarding himself so that we would hunger after him more and so that we would desire to be in his presence and mature in our own faith and in our walk. Now, I hope that as we've gone through this series of studies, that we have understood that the presence of the Lord is the greatest joy and fulfillment that we can have. But it also can be a place of challenge and confrontation uh, of our sin, which makes it difficult at times. And yet, even when the Lord confronts us about our sin and calls that to question, it is for the purpose of restoring us. It's for the purpose of forgiving us. So God always has our best in mind in terms of what he's trying to do by being near us. Now, for Peter here in John chapter 21, it's really both at the same time. It's both a sense of joy and fulfillment and a sense of confrontation. And that is, I think, a rare feeling for Peter because Peter was the one who showed kind of this unbridled love and loyalty to Christ. He was the one who, who really, even though he was impulsive and strong-willed and kind of brash and quick to say something, Peter also did not ever fail to prove how much he really loved the Lord. And his boldness for Christ stood out, especially as we get into Acts and, and Pentecost happens and the Spirit descends and, and Peter's the first one to get up and he gives this great sermon in Acts 2 and talks about the sufficiency of Christ and how they have rejected him. And, and then we see in the early days of the church that he stands up to the authorities and kind of gets in their face and says, you can tell us whatever you want, but we're not going to start doing what we're doing. We're not going to stop preaching the gospel. And, and we really don't care what you think about that because this, this is what we have to do. Carries all through Peter's life, even to the end, when they go to crucify him and Peter says, no, you're not going to crucify me straight up because that's how Jesus was crucified and I'm not worthy of him. So I want to be crucified upside down. Can you imagine? Crucifixion was hard enough. Now you're going down. Peter loved the Lord. And of all the 12, he's really the one who most often and most consistently stood firm for the Lord. Now that makes the denials in the courtyard of the high priest's house on the night Jesus was betrayed, particularly tragic. And it makes them particularly sad to watch, especially after Peter, hours before, had promised Jesus, 
I will go to the jail with you. I will go to the grave with you. Whatever you are going to do, I'm going with you. That's how much I love you. But we know that the follow-through didn't happen. So as we get to John chapter 21, and Jesus has resurrected, he's appeared to the disciples already twice, and now we have this third instance where we come to the beach, and the disciples are out fishing, and Jesus is standing on the beach all of a sudden. There, there is an unmistakable, strong, kind of heavy atmosphere to this text. Because what's happening is there's a, there's a palatable sense of awkwardness. Peter's thrilled to see Jesus. He's thrilled to be back in his presence. And yet he knows that there's still a, an aura of uncomfortableness. There's a sense of something that's not quite resolved. Now, you know the passage. I'm sure you've read it before. But, but let's try to really now put ourselves as an observer here in this passage because uh, that's the way Luke read, wrote it and that's what the Spirit uh, did in giving it to us. He wants us to be observers. He wants to see what's going on. Don't just see these as words on a page now. Infuse yourself into the setting. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll also come with you. They went out and got in the boat and that night they caught nothing. When the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach and his disciples did not know it was him. So Jesus said to them, children, do you not have any fish, do you? They answered, no. And he said, Cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. So they cast, and they were not able to haul in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John writing about himself, said to Peter, it's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Verse 8. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about a 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've now caught. Simon Peter went and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now here's where we really get into the passage that we're going to look at. Verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? knowing it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time Jesus was manifest to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, Do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend to my sheep. Let's stop there. Now, I want to focus primarily on those last six verses that we read, verses 12 to 17. And this interesting conversation that Peter has with Peter, uh, Jesus has with Peter as he deals 
directly with this issue. But notice here that he doesn't get up in Peter's face. He doesn't take him aside and, and scold him. He doesn't accuse him in front of the others and embarrass him and say, I can't believe you denied me. What were you thinking? I told you we were going to do this. What, what's the problem here? He doesn't do that. In fact, even with the heaviness of the atmosphere, there's a gentleness to how Jesus talks to him. That's important to understand, and we'll deal with that a little bit in a couple minutes, but it shows the heart of God here. It shows that the Lord looks to forgive. He looks to redeem. He looks to restore and reconcile us to himself. But, but look at Peter's initial, re, initial reactions in advance of this as Jesus shows up on the shore. Go back to verse 3 for a second. First, we see the fact that they were back to fishing. Now, that every time I read that, that seems almost too casual in light of the resurrection. You would think after seeing Jesus twice already that that would tend to change their priorities and that they would be singularly focused on doing the work of Christ and telling others about Christ. And it's easy to kind of feel surprised by that 2,000 years later. And we might even feel maybe even a little bit critical that, that they're kind of so cavalier with what they've witnessed. But how many of us know how easy it is to have the same dullness and the same distraction about the gospel and to be so engrossed with the things that we want to do and the things that we have to do that we don't follow his calling. If anybody should have been eager to prove himself, it would have been Peter because he had done the most short-term damage to his relationship with Christ. But notice that it's him who actually says, I feel like going fishing. Now, it's important to realize the setting because they're back at Galilee. They're not in Jerusalem where they had seen Jesus the first two times. Somehow, they decided at some point, whether Jesus told them, uh, which he did at one point, or, or they just decided, but they go 90 miles north. And the way they had to get to Galilee to not go to Samaria, they had to go across the Jordan River, up the east side of the Jordan River, and cross back over. So this is 120 miles from Jerusalem. Now, as they're there, we might say that they get a little bit bored. They're waiting for Jesus. They want to know what's next. And Peter kind of says, well, you know, let's go fishing. Right, we have nothing else to do. I think we should, we should go out there and, and get back to our livelihood. Second, we see in verses 7 and 8 that when John tells Peter it's the Lord, Peter wastes no time jumping into the water to swim ashore. Now, the one thing that's interesting there is he leaves the other disciples. They've got all the fish. They've got the boat. They have to tie up the boat, anchor it, get back into the other little boat, row to shore. They've got this whole bag of fish that they're pulling behind them, but not Peter. As soon as Peter knows it's the Lord, he puts on his coat, jumps in the water, starts swimming. And I think Peter's swimming was the sight to behold. But here's how we know that he has a heart for the Lord. Listen now, it's very important. Even with this stigma hanging over his head, even with the, the latent guilt that he has, that he has failed Jesus, he is still eager to get to him. And he is not worried about anything valuable because nothing is more valuable than being in the Lord's presence. He doesn't care about the boat. He doesn't care about the fish. He really doesn't even care about his friend's opinion at this point. He just wants to get in the water and be near the Lord. Now, that's a theme that we've seen echoed throughout the weeks. And I hope that we have learned that it's true. 
Peter's love and desire to be with the Lord outweighed anything else, all but to the point where it seemed illogical or maybe even unfair to others. But listen, that's what Jesus told us we should look like, isn't it? That's what he said we should be, that people eventually will mock and criticize and curse us and speak evil about us because we love the Lord so much. And that what would validate and distinguish us as disciples is that we would willfully choose that nothing and no one will be more important to us than Jesus Christ. And that includes ourselves to the point that family members or close friends may criticize us because they don't understand. Now, isn't that why people reject us? Or do they turn away because our ego is too strong and because our faith is anemic or because we're not willing to take a bold stand and they say, well, that's not what a Christian looks like. Listen, I'd much rather have people reject me as a person because I've taken too strong a stand for the Lord than have people reject me as a person because my stand isn't strong enough. For them to look at me and say, you're a Christian, really? I I don't see it. Where is it? Where's your faith? Where's your boldness? Where's your confidence? I'd much rather have people say, you're a jerk because your convictions are strong. Because Jesus said, when that happens, you're blessed. When that happens, God says, wonderful, you've really taken a stand for me. Now, that doesn't mean we're, we're, we're mean or that we're obnoxious or that we're proud in that. It just means that we're convinced of what we think. Listen, would you and I have been the first ones in the water? Would we have said, guys, forget the boat. Come on, that's Jesus right there. If there's anything we should love about Peter, it's his boldness here. Now, look at the third principle here when jesus tells them to bring some of the fish they caught which peter by the way didn't help bring to shore so there's probably a little bit of a little bit of grumbling about that hey peter it's great you love the lord but um we did all the work now jesus says bring some of those fish and who's the first one up peter he gets a lord i brought them now The Spirit never includes any information that's superfluous. He never puts anything in there that's needless. So this is an important detail. It raises a couple questions. Is Peter humbling himself? Is he saying, hey, guys, my bad. I'm sorry. You did all the work. Bring it in. I know I'm a little impulsive. You know that about me. I jumped in the water. Let me go get the fish. Or is he being selfish here? Is he saying, I'll go get them, Lord? And he walks down, here are the fish that we caught. And the disciples are going, all right, can you believe this guy? Come on, you gotta, you got to think through the text that way, all right? This is not just words that we read in a lofty way. Let's, let's be very visceral with the text here. So what's the attitude? What's the feeling? Is Peter making a show of himself or is he covering his bases? Is he feeling uncomfortable that he's near Christ? And he, and he wants some kind of distraction. Hey, I'll, I'll go get the fish and maybe I won't have to be confronted with the, with the guilt that I feel. Or is he trying to prove his love and sincerity? When you study scripture, ask those questions in the text, even if we don't have the answers. Because it's fun and fascinating to analyze what Peter might be thinking here. And we don't know if the others get questions. 
We don't know if he looks at Nathaniel and Thomas and says, do you love me? But John doesn't record it. The only one that John records and the only one the Spirit apparently wants us to study is here in verse 15 when Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Now, what we will do in taking this apart for the next couple of minutes, I believe, is gain a greater understanding of the way that we should think as disciples, but also have a greater insight into the deep love and grace and forgiveness of God. Look back at verse 15 for a minute. The first indication that this moment is different, that there are lessons here that the Lord needs to teach to Peter, is shown in the fact that he calls him Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon was Peter's name three years before. When he was just a fisherman in Capernaum and nobody knew about him. And he was just kind of your average Joe. One of the thousand boats out on the Galilee every day. Trying to make a living. Trying to keep his family afloat. Trying to to just have an existence. And then one day Jesus calls him to follow him. And Peter goes from Simon son of John to Peter the rock on whom Christ would establish the church. But notice in this moment, look back at verse 15. That at this point... Peter has regressed back to who he was and how he thought before he knew Christ. And Jesus calls him on that and says, Peter, you need to understand something. There's a very important spiritual phenomenon here. That if we're going to long for our old self and we're going to live in our old self before who we were before him, that we're going to go back to that life and live in sin and think that way and not trust him and not follow him, and not be his disciple, if we're going to do that, even for a moment, then the Lord is going to treat us like that. Because he wants us to get a very clear picture of how inadequate and how miserable that life is. The Lord will not hesitate to take us through feeling like we used to feel so that we will only want to feel like we feel now. Does that make sense? Sometimes the Lord gives us what we want. Even when it's selfish and horrible and drives us from Him. And it isn't really what we want as His children, but it's what we crave. And we ease back into that old life. And the Lord says, fine, experience that for a little bit and watch it blow up in your face. And then you'll really hunger for me. Peter wept when he denied Christ. He didn't weep because he knew that Christ's prediction had come true. He wept because that showed him that he was not this unfailing, self-sufficient, strong guy that he always bragged he was. He wasn't living up to his press clippings. And don't you know he would have loved to just hope that everybody would erase that from their memory and Jesus would never bring it up and that everything would be kosher and that it would be great and that they just move on. But the Lord doesn't do that. Look at the text. He reminds Peter of how serious the failure is. Not because he's mean. And not because Peter didn't already know it. And not because Peter won't be forgiven. He does it so Peter won't forget it. And won't repeat it. Three times. One for each denial. 
One for each responsibility that he's going to give Peter. And at the end, he's not going to be Simon anymore. He's not going to be the son of John anymore. He's going to be Peter again, the faithful disciple who would stand for the Lord and be the strongest voice of the gospel. From chapter 21 of John to the end of Scripture, Simon Peter is never called Simon alone again. He becomes Peter. And that's a permanent change. Now, looking at the text, Jesus asked three questions. And they all seem very similar. But when we look at the nuances and the language that he uses, we see that each one has a different purpose, each of which applies to us. So write some things down now. Let's interact with the text. You're listening far too well. It's a little disarming. So do something. Do you have the the slide, guys, of the Galilee? Can you punch that up for me? This is similar to what it would look like when they come in on the boat and Jesus is standing on the shore. This is the Sea of Galilee. That's the Golan Heights there on the, um, on the top part of the picture. So just get a mental picture. If you guys would just leave that up for a couple minutes. Let's just get a mental picture of what's going on. So they're sitting there. They're around the fire. There's fish. There's bread. That's calling them back in remembrance, the feeding of the 5,000. So now Jesus asks the first question. Simon, verse 15. Do you love me more than these? This question, I believe, is designed to help Peter understand the inadequacy, instability, and impotency of our pride. I believe this question is designed to show Peter, look, if you trust in yourself and you believe that your pride's going to carry you through, you need to understand right now, based on what's happened when you denied me, that that will always fail. Now, this is the only question in which Jesus draws a comparison to Peter's love for him compared to the others. And he does so because Peter had been the one who had claimed, I'm more loyal, I love you more than these guys do. If you go back, and we will, to Luke 23 and John 15, Peter almost challenges Jesus at the Last Supper, like, you're not going anywhere without me. I'll go to the cross. And I believe he was kind of that emotionally belligerent. He was saying, hey, wait a second. You're talking about going, I'm going to the cross. These guys don't love you as much as me. I'll go to the cross with you. Now, again, I believe Peter really meant that. I believe in his heart, he really thought, I will be that faithful to you. But his follow-through fell short. And Jesus told him that at the time. Not only saying, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. But he also said, listen, Peter. This is part of a greater spiritual battle that's going on because the enemy, the devil, Satan, wants to sift you like wheat. Put up the next slide if you would. Thank you, guys. This is sifting wheat. This is called winnowing. It's still done today in Israel where they throw the wheat up in the air and and the little pods, the chaff, flies away in the wind because it's lighter. And then the good seed, what is edible, falls to the ground. And then, would you go to the next one, please? They take it and they sift that wheat. You can see it coming out. And what's left is what's good. Now, seeing those pictures, the Lord says to Peter, the devil wants to do that with you. He wants to find out what's good. And he wants to see what what is impure in you. But he wants to attempt to remove the good and keep the evil. That's seen in the denial. 
But this sifting that the devil did, this is so wonderful, had an unintentional and undesirable effect to the enemy because the Lord took that sifting and he turned it. And he said, devil, you want to sift Peter and make him evil, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to shake him and whittle him to break him and reshape him so he'll be more in love with me. How many know that the, that the Lord always defeats the plans of the enemy? What the enemy intends for evil, God will use for good. Even if there's an evil path, God can take that, shape that, winnow that, change that, sift that, so it gets what he wants us to do. And who has had that happen to them? I know I have many, many times. Many times that the Lord has shown himself more powerful than enemy schemes and that the evil intent that he had moved into a point of spiritual maturation. That sifting broke down Peter's self-sufficiency. It was the undeniable proof that trusting in himself was never going to be enough for the Lord. It's all the evidence that we need that we cannot trust ourselves. Because as the choir just sang so beautifully, we need the Lord. We need him. Come on now, we can't go through this summer thinking, well, I can just do my own thing and I can be self-sufficient. And the enemy will start to provoke us and every once in a while we'll concede to him. If we do that, if we take that approach, the Lord is going to show us time and again, not because he's mean, not because he's militant, but because he loves us. He's going to show us time and again, you are weak, you are insufficient, the enemy is a liar and an accuser, and he wants to sift you, and I want to turn that so you will love me more. But you got to pay attention. This text proves that. This text shows that. Jesus says, Simon, come on, Peter, think now. You're acting like you used to act. I know you're impulsive. I get that. I know you're bold. I get that. I'm going to use that for my good. But listen now, Simon, Simon, you're not under the Spirit's control right now. You're doing your own thing. Satan has had his way with you. He sifted you. Now, Simon, do you love me more than these? Because you bragged that you did. But Simon, listen now. I want to turn that for good. Look at the second question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? I believe the second question is designed to help Peter know the depths of God's forgiveness. And I think it's also designed to help him understand the importance of ministering to people at their point of need. It had to overwhelm Peter for Jesus to ask this again. I can only imagine his face. I can only imagine how crestfallen he visibly was. The first time Jesus asked, Simon, do you love me more than these? Lord, you know that I do. Is that it? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And I, I believe, I'm reading between the lines here, I believe that it was visible to him that something changed. And sadness overwhelmed him that Lord would really ask again. Lord, you know I love you. 
But now his failure is out in the open. Now Jesus is questioning his loyalty. Peter was the one who had always jumped into action first. At the transfiguration, let's, let's build tents for you guys. This will be great. We'll form some little mini individual tabernacles for you. And then when Jesus walked on the water during the storm, Peter's like, I want to come out there. Let me come on. Let me come. And then when they're in the garden and, and the guards come up and Judas is there and is mocking mad or kissing Jesus. And Peter pulls out his sword and lops off Malchus's ear and says, we're going to fight. Peter's always the one who is showing his loyalty. His zeal was admirable and it was memorable. I even wonder if there's a running joke that's going on with the disciples about Peter's kind of impulsiveness. Don't you think? Come on, these are guys. Look at Peter. There he goes again. <laughs> Man, that guy's a character. I can't believe we know him. I wonder what the Lord really thinks of him. You ever seen that? I mean, really, seriously. Have you ever seen a guy like that? You know, Nathaniel's back there. Thomas is over there worrying, and Judas is counting the money. And there's Peter. I have to think, at some point in three years, they're just going, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I told him not to get out of the boat. Look at it, how he's sinking. Totally missing the message, of course, that Jesus is giving. Because they're just going, oh. Again, again, he's out on the water. Can you believe this? I think he can walk on the water. So for Jesus to come a second time, Peter, do you love me? Oh, man, that had to cut deep. But that was the only way that he and us can know the extent of God's mercy. Listen now. The only way you can understand the extent of God's mercy is by having a full understanding of the pain of sin. Both how it feels to you and how it feels to the Lord. Much of Peter's sorrow, I believe, was not just that he was getting called out, but that the Lord had to even ask the question. And I believe that in this moment, when Jesus asked the second time, that Peter's mind flashes back to the look that Jesus gave him the third time he denied. And it says, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And I think in his mind, he remembers that stare. I think that stare was going to be in his mind forever. And he was broken by it if we only had a greater sense of that brokenness in our own lives. The time when you've really let the Lord down. Listen, I'm not talking about guilt trips not carrying, talking about beating yourself up and carrying on. And, oh, I'm so miserable. I fell the Lord. Listen, I've been around those people. Jesus gives us victory, but have an awareness of sin. Have an awareness of the pain that sin causes the Lord because we need to understand that brokenness so we'll get a sense of awe about his forgiveness. Listen, the cost of sin has become too sterile in our thinking, hasn't it? Sin's so ingrained in our culture that it's not even, not even a disgrace anymore. And then on the flip side, we get spoiled by the wideness and sufficiency of God's grace. And it's so prevalent and so wonderful that sometimes we forget that every single sin cost Christ his life. Every lie, every look of lust, every curse word that comes out of our mouth, every act of coveting, every act of worshiping something that's not the Lord Jesus Christ... 
Every one of those cost Christ his life. So we need to not be so cavalier that we are sometimes. I am sometimes about sin. Well, sin and ask forgiveness. Like it's no big deal. Peter had to learn this. And he especially had to learn it because impulsive people tend to overlook the consequences of their actions. Let alone to deal with the need for reconciling with the people that they've hurt. And that raises an important spiritual truth that affects every one of our lives. In fact, I've shared it with some of you personally, and you know it's true. The truth is this. The Lord will almost always give you powerful opportunities to minister in what you uniquely know and have experienced. If you have had cancer, then the Lord will bring people into your life that you can minister to that are also dealing with cancer because you can speak that language. If you've gotten through divorce and the Lord has helped you and has brought you restoration, then he can help you as you endure and minister to other people who are feeling the pain of that. If you've had a child that's wandered away from the Lord spiritually and then been restored, he's going to bring people to you that have had child children that are now straying from the Lord. So you can speak truth to them and say, here's what I learned. Here's how the Lord was sufficient. Let's pray. I can't do that. Just because I'm a minister doesn't mean I can minister to people in the same way that you can. Some of you can speak to some hardship that I've never understood. And you can do it with joy and with satisfaction and say at the end of the day, the Lord is good. And listen, you need him. where he's developed and matured you in distinct ways and where he's taught you spiritual truths that are deeper than many understand, he will provide ways for you to do that in ministry. That's why Jesus gives Peter this commission. First, he says, tend my lambs. The word literally means to feed. In other words, he's saying, Peter, you have responsibility for the spiritual maturation of the flock. You're going to be the one who's going to teach. You're going to be the one who's going to develop the biblical understanding. And the implication of them being lambs is that these are the ones who are mature. They don't know any better. You're going to run into a lot of people, Peter, that that don't get it. Now, that might seem beneath Peter. You're the rock upon whom I'm going to build my church. But he's going to be the one dealing with the little immature ones. Why not somebody else? Notice Peter doesn't say, beneath me Peter got it oh I get it immature impulsive and don't understand let's see who does that describe oh yeah me then Jesus says look at the next verse I'm going to give you a larger role okay you get you get what you've done right and you get my restoration And you get the need for me? Here's your second job. Shepherd my sheep. Confident that Peter can talk about God's grace with passion and sincerity, Jesus says, let's broaden the role. I don't want you just to teach. I want you to oversee and tend to the flock. It will mean being everything to them and watching over them. Peter, you have a big role now. I'm not saying this to Thomas and Nathaniel and Andrew. I'm talking to you, Peter. You have the job. You teach my sheep. You shepherd my sheep. You be the one 
that watches over them. Isn't it amazing how quickly the Lord calls us to responsibility to do his work, even as we're working out our own salvation with fear and trembling? Don't ever say, well, I'm young in the Lord, so I've got to grow a lot more before I can serve. No, you can serve right now. We may not put you in a role of great authority and great responsibility because you're not there maturely, but you can serve. And the Lord takes somebody that has denied him three times publicly and says, you're the one to oversee the church. Can you imagine that? He knows that we need to get in the middle of the work. And when we see lives changed, oh, it stokes our passion for the Lord. Now let's finish up. All of this would have been wonderful and powerful. And Peter, even though it's been painful and he's been embarrassed, he probably thinks, oh, good. All right, you asked me twice. That was was rough. Okay, well, discussion's over. I learned my lesson. Great. It's been a little stressful, but, you know, a little more fish. (laughs) And here comes verse 17. Peter? Not Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me? This is where it gets very, very personal. And I believe the third question is designed to help Peter know how much he really loved the Lord. Peter, you bragged before. I want to make sure you understand that and the danger of pride and the danger of sin. Do you love me more than these? And Peter, you need to understand the consequences of sin and the fact that I'm calling you to a new responsibility. And for you to take that responsibility, you have to experience what you've experienced. Now, third, let's get down to it. Peter, do you love me? Now, before we develop this point, let me say over the last five to ten years, I've started to learn what it really means to actually love the Lord. For years, I've been saved 38 years this summer. For years, that phrase seemed weird. I'm being very honest. It seemed odd to say, I love the Lord. Of course, I was grateful for his grace. Of course, I was grateful for his calling. But the concept of loving him, like this is talking about, didn't quite connect with me. But then the Lord put me through experiences that taught me the riches of his love and tested the sincerity of my own love for him. Some of them were wonderful, some of them were painful. But as much as they were what they were, and as agonizing as some of them were to my heart, they were some of the greatest experiences I ever had, because in those times, I learned about the love of the Lord, and I learned what it meant to love him. It's like when you're long distance from somebody that you love, or even when when they're maybe injured and they can't communicate with you, your sense of the importance of their presence becomes much more acute. And you become more aware of how much you really, really love them. That's what happened with Peter. The more Jesus presses the issue, the more Peter realizes, oh, I really do love the Lord. And it shows in the language he uses. Because if you look back at verse 15, the first time Peter that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He uses the strongest possible word, agapeo. It means to love dearly. Oh, Peter, do you love me? 
And Peter responds with a different word. He responds with phileo, which means that I'm fond of you. Now, we can only speculate why he did that. Maybe he was insecure because he had failed Christ, or maybe he feels like he's incapable of loving to that extent, or maybe he's just being modest. It doesn't really matter because the first two times he responds to Christ, he holds back. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I like you. Peter, do you love me? Oh, I'm very fond of you. And now Jesus gets to the point, not that he wasn't before, but he really bores in now. Peter, do you love me? And the text says that Peter was grieved because of the question. The word there literally means he had a heavy heart full of sadness, almost to the point of being offended. And you see kind of the reaction And I imagine this kind of bursting from his lips. Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. The word changes. It's not, oh, I'm fond of you. It's been wonderful for three years walking with you. Isn't it been great? Guys, hasn't it been great? The third time when Peter is told, do you love me? He says, of course I love you. And that's what the Lord was waiting for. He was waiting for that unguarded, genuine, passionate, personal expression of love. Of course I love you. You know I love you. But let me tell you again, I love you. And at that point, look at it, we're done. His repentance is obvious and his restoration is complete. And Jesus never brings it up again. You know, this is the amazing fact of God's grace. It has the power to reconcile and restore and renew. If the Lord can love, listen now, if the Lord can love someone who openly denied him three times, swearing the third time, then he can use that person to launch the birth of his church, then he can love us and show us mercy that will meet all our needs. If your marriage is in trouble this morning, he can reconcile your marriage. He can restore it. He can make it like day one when you fell in love. If you're estranged from your children and Mother's Day is sad to you because you're not with your kids, because there's tension there and there's been a break in the relationship, he can restore that relationship and he can bring you back into unity and love and that can be a point of strength rather than a point of weakness. If you're dull right now and you're stuck in chronic sin and there's no joy in your salvation and you read that verse, restore to me the joy of my salvation, you say, I wish that would be true, but it's not going to happen. Let me tell you this morning, the Lord can renew your love for him and he can renew, renew the desire to do his will. Nothing is impossible with him. How do I know that? You've listened well. Let me read one more set of verses. Peter knew power of God's love to reconcile. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter 1. God's great mercy has caused us 
to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and it won't fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. And in this church, you greatly rejoice. Here's where it gets personal. I think as he writes this, he's thinking back to John 21. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you haven't seen him, I have. You love him and you believe in him and you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Of all people, Peter knew the power of God's love to reconcile and restore, which is why he says later in chapter 4, love covers a multitude of sins. He knew God's love. Jesus stood on the shore. You guys catch anything? No. Hey, that's the Lord. In the water. Up the shore. Grab a couple fish. Hope Jesus doesn't say anything. Peter was excited to see it. But there was some stuff to clear up. Do you love me? I mean, do do you love me? Peter, let's be honest. Do you love me? I don't know what the Lord's dealing with in your life this morning. Maybe, Maybe God's still relentlessly dealing with your pride. Or maybe he wants you to minister to somebody, but you're resistant or... Or maybe he just says, I want to see what Peter did. I want to see you say, I love you. Of course I do. His presence will bring power. His presence will reveal his love and his grace. Draw close to him. Let's pray together. Lord, you are so faithful so sufficient and so gracious it boggles our mind that you would take any interest in us after how much we have hurt you let alone that you would send Christ to die and rise again let alone that you would call us to so great a salvation Father, we praise you this morning for the reconciliation of the cross and the restoration of the relationship. Lord, we ask you this morning to renew our love for you. As the holy, holy, holy Lord who holds our lives in his hands. You show us love that we can't fathom and mercy that is far more sufficient than we could ever need. And you call us, first and foremost, the greatest commandment, to love you. So, Lord, I pray for each of us this morning that we would love you so much more. 
that you wouldn't have to say, do you really love me? That it would be so obvious and so pure that our lives would be a living testimony of your love and your grace. Father, help us. This is difficult for us, but help us. Lord, I pray if there's someone that's discouraged this morning, someone that's struggling, that you draw them toward yourself, that you would show them again your great love so that they would be comforted and they would know that they can rest in that love and find sufficiency in you. Lord, help them, support them this morning. Lord, we want to stand for you. We want to stand strong. We want to stand boldly like Peter did days later at Pentecost when he said, this is my Jesus. This is the one who saves. I pray that that would be true of us, Father. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Choir is going to come. We're going to close our service by singing what I just prayed. I'll stand. This is not, again, just words that are nice to close a service. This is a statement of commitment, a statement of love, that we will stand for him, that we will be faithful to him, that we will show our deep, deep love for him. If you don't know that this morning, if you don't know what that means, if I'm talking a strange language to you, come talk to me afterwards. Come talk to Randy. We'll tell you what it is to know Jesus Christ. May God bless you and encourage you. Let's really sing now, okay? Come on. This is a song of commitment. Let's really praise the Lord.